Welcome to the NCO Journal Podcast, where we explore NCO professional development. This is a podcast series where we discuss published articles with authors and provide a forum for the open exchange of ideas, information, and solutions. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Brandon Cox, Senior Editor of the NCO Journal. With us is the Managing Editor for the NCO Journal, Chaga Zapata, and Sergeant First Class's Valdo Akite, the NCOIC of the NCO Journal. Today we discuss the article, Embracing the Future of a Multi-Domain Army, with Sergeant Major Charles Wilson. He's an instructor for the Department of the Army Operations at the U.S. Army Sergeant Majors Academy. Thank you for joining us, Sergeant Major. Before we kick things off, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Good morning, everyone. So I am currently the Vice Chair for the Department of Army Operations at the Sergeant Sergeant Major Academy. And my job here is to kind of be the senior instructor for the instructors that teach in our department. Our curriculum focuses primarily on uh, operations, uh, such as we start with MDO, going to large-scale combat operations, mission command, ADM, Army Design Methodology, and MDMP, uh, the military decision-making process. Uh, my career uh, is largely based on being a battalion-level scout, so I have a lot of experience in and around um, talks and, and various planning cells, uh, providing uh, real-world intel um, from on the ground uh, via radio and things like that. Um, I was also infantry prior service, so I've been around for a hot minute, um, and that's pretty much who I am. Sergeant Major, can you please give us a brief description of uh, what your article is about? So, to take you back, uh, I wrote this article uh, last spring, uh, so it's taken a little while to get published. Uh, But the intent of the article was to kind of get out there before the FM got out and help people to understand why the Army was changing to MDL and, and encourage people to see the need for that change. And then just to look at what it really means. How does it change how we do business what what are we looking for in the future as an army that wants to be competitive in a world scene uh using multi-domain operations yeah let me start it off here uh can you describe how you see the future conflict with near-peer threats okay so to understand uh, me as as a person i i do a lot of study uh in, in this realm because this is our a lot of focus of what we do in our department um, so I believe, you know, it's important to be a subject matter expert. So uh, I do a lot of reading from uh, a lot of the present articles that a lot of our generals have written about, and then some past uh, articles uh, such as the Battle 73 seeing and stuff like that, and, and try to understand these things that they're telling us, uh, our leaders. And it has become clear to me uh, looking at the news and looking at the articles that are writing that we no longer have a competitive advantage that we once have had. And what that really means is, you know, we're used to having air superiority and a lot of these things that have made us, you know, incredibly successful in the past. Uh, But when we start looking at near peer fights and why we need to switch to MDO, um, it really becomes challenged in every domain and it really becomes challenged in everything we try to do. And, and that's part of what MDO is about. When we talk a little bit later about convergence and some of those things, I, I think that will help us to have a better understanding of, of what this is really about. I, I'd like to follow up a little bit on that, you know, with what's, especially with what's happening in Ukraine. Should NCOs be paying attention to what's happening and, and reading on, you know, what's maybe some of the articles, some of the things that are coming out from the, that conflict? Because, I mean, how are we going to, what better opportunity is there for us to learn 
about these these near peer competitors, I guess, than than to watch them in action as they've been watching us in action over the past twenty years. Uh, one of the things I would preface that conversation with, though, is or this answer is. Be careful not to see the things that uh, the press a lot of times puts out there as being, you know, very negative. Like, look how how terrible they're doing at resupplying their troops, the Russians. Um, you have to also understand that from our perspective, we might very well have the same problems uh, because they're trying to over some 400 kilometers conduct supply operations. And when we train like at a place like NTC, like that's only a little over 60 K. Um, so. We, what we should be doing is looking at it and seeing some of those things and, and understanding that those might very well be problems that we would have in this scenario. And then we also need to understand, too, that, you know, Ukraine is not a near peer threat really to Russia. Um, however, comma, there is a lot of equipment and a lot of things. This gives us an opportunity to do a test, a, test a lot of our weapon systems and whatnot in a real world environment, which also does help us out later because now we see what they do against the enemy. Sorry, Major, what do you believe are some of the advantages that our near-peer adversaries have over us now? Well, as the article kind of brings out, you know, while we've been fighting this war, uh, multi-front, you know, counterinsurgency war basically for 20 years, um, our peers have been watching what we've been doing. They've been seeing the weapon systems we're using. They've had time to consolidate some gains and without any type of conflict. Um, we see that, you know, Russia annexed part of Ukraine, uh, Crimea, was without firing a shot, basically. Um, and we did nothing to stop it because we were involved in things of our own. Um, and we see in China, you know, they're building up the South China Sea, uh, building man-made islands out there and what was basically unclaimed territory previously, and now they're calling it their own territory. So there's some of these problems, and then we also see the, the competitors, some of the technologies that they have are very comparable to ours when we look at the F-35 and some of the, the, the fighters of Russia and China. Um, they're built to do the same things we do. And if we break it down further, like even some of our artillery pieces and some of the things we use, some of theirs outrange ours, actually. And, and these are concerns that we have uh, when we think about the fight that we've fought before, uh, because when you're fighting counterinsurgency, insurgency, you know, maybe you run into a platoon of fighters, maybe they have a mortar system if they're high speed and, you know, a couple RPGs or something like that, or a sniper rifle, but you're you're not taking ground forces into a fight against equal weapon systems. You're not having to, you know, disable um, uh, air defense systems and take out radar and communications to be able to even uh, attempt that attack, which is what we're going to face in MDO in large scale combat. And you talk about some of those differences right now. You mentioned some of those differences for those who are, who are used to fighting in counterinsurgency operations. They're going to have to deal with something like that in you. But what would you say? Um, what does it mean for NCOs that don't have any combat experience um, for them to to start looking at MDO? So first of all, one to understand that they're they're the norm. You know. Uh, I think it was McCombo in one of his articles stated that, you know, 80% of our population right now has never seen uh, a time when we didn't have the competitive advantage. So this is not something new. Um, Also, a lot of the skills that they had in a small level fight are still the same skills they need to use in a large level fight. Their mission's not going to change so much so drastically with the basic uh, warrior tests and skills for whatever their CMF is. Uh, The issue really is that they're going to have to be able to execute in the absence of orders at times. 
um, because communications are always going to be contested more because we're dealing with that near peer threat that has the ability to jam our communications. Um, so they're going to have to really understand the commander's intent. They're going to really have to understand the mission. Um, you know, if their part was to, you know, take out a certain element and we were depending on other things to happen in the meantime, they still have that mission, uh, regardless of whether some other things fall through or not, if it's possible to complete. Um, and they have to understand that and be willing to do that, which means, you know, they're going to have to be able to shoot, maneuver and communicate. They're going to have to be able to potentially read a map if GPS is jammed. Uh, and those are skills that we used to practice a lot. Uh, back in the old days, we were extremely proficient in a lot of these things, battle drills, you know, we knew them inside and out and backwards, but the level of practice and repetition is not there like it used to be. And also, you know, commanders now, I think, are, are risk adverse sometimes and they're afraid to take risks. Um, the bottom line is, you know, we need to take risks and the commander needs to understand that they need to train their soldiers to be competent. Soldiers need to work themselves to be competent. And then in training scenarios and whenever they can, they need to let them exercise critical and creative thinking on their own to accomplish the mission, you know, because soldiers will surprise you if you give them a chance. And, and bottom line is we need them to be able to take that initiative within the commander's guidance or intent uh, to accomplish the mission because it might very well come to them. They're their, our, our best effort on the ground and we have no way to communicate to them. And there's no time for them to be able to call back and wait for the permission to go do what they need to do. That, that brings us to convergence. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what convergence is and maybe why it's important? Sure. So uh, a lot of people think about convergence as just bringing um, really our capabilities in all domains together, which is kind of true. Uh, but what we're really doing there is not just our capabilities in all domains, but at different levels. So core, division, even down to the brigade level, we're involved and we all have certain missions. So let's say, for example, you know, we've been given the task to take out the enemy's uh, reserve. So we know pretty much where that reserve is. We'd like to just put down some fire on them and that would be the end of it, but they're probably going to do some survivability stuff and try to avoid that. They're also going to have other measures in place to try to keep us from getting eyes on them, whether that be physically uh, with scouts on the ground or whether that would be IRSR assets. Um, so they're going to have capabilities out there to stop those things from putting eyes on exactly where those people are or, or those organizations are. So convergence really is us looking at that from way out in the extended deep realm and other realms to where we disrupt the enemy C2, to where we try to take down their networks, to where we might use our own capabilities to try to take out, once we've done that, try to take out their uh, long range fires or middle range fires, all those things that can impede us from taking out that reserve, right? And, and then, you know, once we've cleared that, what have we done? Now we've freed up our attack aviation and other things to be able to go forward and to help us in that. So. Convergence really is the synchronization of all those things at all those different levels to enable us on the ground, whether that be the infantry platoon or the tank platoon, to go accomplish our mission. But until all those other things happen at the right time and space, it's not really possible for us to do that and be really successful at it. Uh, and that's really what convergence is. As I'm, I'm listening to you, uh, your, your answer, I'm, I'm thinking, what does that have to do with you know, hey, when you're talking about the young NCO, say a young sergeant uh, out in the field, he is, he's been empowered by his, uh, 
his commander to, to, to make certain decisions. Uh, how is it important that he know about things like this, about convergence and about, about this whole process? Is it important for, for somebody like that to, to have that um, knowledge? Absolutely. It's important. Let's, let's take, for example, that scout, you know, that's sitting on the hill and, and we know this mission is going to go down with the tanks, you know, and, and they see that asset out there, that enemy asset or that radar asset, you know, that's out there and, and they see it and they know that it's a commander's priority to find those targets, to identify them and to put fire on them and destroy them to ensure that we're successful in taking out that reserve, right? So, that scout on the ground now understands the mission and understands that's a high priority target. So the important thing there is then that they report that information rapidly and accurately, and that allows us to create that decision dominance that we'll talk about later. And it allows the, for the overall success of the mission. And it's the same for the, you know, the tank platoon on the ground. You know, they have to understand the things that have to take place, yet at the same point, they have to also understand their mission. Because there's at times, you know, where we need to go beyond and, and we're going to talk about this as we talk about commander's intent. But if we look at the battle of um, 73 Easting and McMaster, you know, he was told to stop at, at 70 Easting. That was his limit of advance. Um, but we don't call it the battle of 70 Easting. We call it the battle of 73 Easting because he told his XO, he's like, we have the enemy on the run. We have them. At, at the disadvantage right now, and we cannot stop. It is against doctrine for us to stop right now at this point and to wait for, you know, reinforcements or whatever, because we have the advantage and we can get the win. And, you know, he did that. And you might say, well, oh my gosh, look, he, he, he violated an order and stuff. But how he was able to do that is that's how they trained prior to that conflict. They're commander was willing to accept that risk and even told them that they needed to take that discipline initiative when that opportunity presented itself to be successful and complete the overall mission. And that's what the junior leaders need to know. That's why they need to make sure they're competent. They know their warrior tests and skills. They know the order. They have the commander's intent because it's those things together with acting decisively on the battlefield that are going to help us to be successful in large-scale combat operations and multi-domain operations. So the more knowledgeable they are, the more uh, informed, uh, the more effective. Exactly. Because imagine the time difference it takes for them to call up to the commander, finally get through to the commander to make tell them what they see, then to react when the commander tells them. By then, that enemy might have moved and that opportunity is now gone. In multi-domain operations, we need to seize those opportunities and create those dilemmas for the enemy. Sergeant Major, uh, in MDO and moving into possible near-peer you know, adversaries, thinking about that type of situation, what are some things our junior NCOs can do now to better prepare in case we have you know, communication issues, uh, technology or equipment issues? Okay. Um, so every organization has PACE plans, um, which are those alternate plans that allow us to go to alternate forms of communication. Uh, the problem is in the past, you know, we've been kind of spoiled or maybe we cheat and use a cell phone and we do all these things. You know, we need to be competent in all these little things that maybe we've taken for granted for a long time. Uh, and maybe we've taken the shortcut on some of them and we need to really rehearse and practice these things and become proficient in them. Because, you know, the last thing we want to be is under fire and nobody wants to be under fire. 
but when we look at under fire in a large scale kind of thing and what an MDO fight would be look like, you know, that's that's not just an insurgent shooting at us or a couple mortar rounds. You know, you, you could be talking about your whole element decimated in seconds if you don't do the wrong thing. So it's little little things like when we're staging at the LD, you know, we don't do it like we did at the FOB and have a line of vehicles sitting there waiting to go out. Everybody needs to maintain their dispersion until it's time to move. And then, you know, one at a time, vehicles or personnel peel off and, and assume the right distance and the right position from those in front of them and behind them to maintain that dispersion. Those are all little things that are in our doctrine, have always been in our doctrine, but we haven't been practicing. And we need to practice those things uh, because if we don't, like I said, what's going to happen? You know, the enemy is always going to have eyes on us in this type of fight. They're going to see us massing like that to prepare to, for a movement, and that's when they're going to strike. They're not going to wait and let us get out there and, and conduct that fair fight. So we need to train on the little things, and we need to make sure we're, we're not taking shortcuts. We need to make sure that we're precise, you know, in our battle drills and the things we do, because that space between infantrymen might be the difference. And if you live or die, you know, if a mortar round strikes or, you know, you may, you, you didn't contact. Um, also, when we look at this, we, we think about talk personnel a lot of times, and, and we think about, well, he's just, you know, the, the guy in the, the talk listening to radio. That is a key and vital job. And one of the big problems we have in a lot of our organizations is we don't put our best people in those jobs. You know, when we're asked to send people to the S3 shop, you know, we want to give them our worst soldier. Um, and, and that's really hindering this whole process, uh, because if we don't if we don't give them the, the person that can, you know, when everything is hitting the fan, you know, be able to be calm enough to relay that message to the commander and, and relay that message back to the person on the ground, then that hinders the success the speed to which we can deliver this information or maybe even potentially the accuracy of the information. And, you know, there's a far cry difference from, hey, I see this, you know, this anti air uh, piece of equipment on the field, you know, that we want to take out. So we have air priority or superiority versus, you know, hey, that's a, a you know, an infantry fighting vehicle. You know, those are completely different things. So all those little skills are very important. And then the last thing I would say is hold your leaders accountable. If they're not giving you the information that you need from the commander's intent to understand the overall, what's going on in convergence, what is happening at all those other levels, then you're not getting enough information. Because if if I'm down on the ground executing that mission and somebody else is unable to execute their mission to the left or right, and I don't know what, they're, what they were supposed to be doing, and that still needs to get done, and they've been taken out of the fight somehow, then we have a problem because then that's not going to get done. Maybe that exposes our flank and the whole plan is ruined uh, simply because we don't know the whole plan. Absolutely. Sergeant Major, what do you think is the single most important takeaway for junior NCOs uh, reading your article? I would have to get back to the little things. You know, there's... There's so many things that we need to do as individuals, but that's where it really starts. If, you know, competence and relevance go together. If if I'm the most proficient tank gunner on a Sheridan tank, or I was, you know, during whatever war, uh, that's that's not competence that is relevant to, to the battlefield today. Um, so we have a lot of leaders, I think, that, you know, like the old school way of doing things sometimes or whatever it may be, and they don't train up 
they don't bother to learn the new piece of equipment. And, and same with the younger soldiers sometimes, you know, they, they take the easy way out rather than learn to do, you know, X, Y, or Z, you know, maybe they pull out their cell phone that they're not even supposed to have at a training center and call somebody to get something they need or whatever. You know, it's those little things that take away from your competence and takes away from your relevance to the fight. Um, so what I would encourage everybody to do is first look at themselves. Do I know my job the ins and outs? Have I done everything to show myself approved, if you will? And and what I mean by that is, you know, it's a two-way street, this with commanders being able to allow you to exercise discipline and being willing to assume that risk. If you're not competent in doing your job, I'm less likely to allow you to do more. I'm going to hold on to you a little bit tighter, and that's kind of the mission command thing where we take more command and control instead of allowing the philosophy of mission command, which is, hey, here's what I need you to do. Go execute it. You know, if I have to hold your hand through it, then we're not getting it done the right way, and it's just not going to work in a, in a fight like that. So junior leaders first, worry about yourself. Make sure that you know your job and then start looking around you to your left and right and make sure they know their jobs. Make sure as a team you work together and make sure you hold your leaders accountable to give you all the information you need to be successful. You know, one of the things about, like, say, uh, tomorrow we're, we're going to, we're, we're going to do some land nav, uh, and that's it. You don't go any further into telling your, your troops why or, or, or the, you know, what, what the significance is. And I think that that might be a failing with some NCOs is that if, if you don't tell your troops why you're doing certain things, they're, gonna, they're not going to know the importance of why they're doing it. You know, it's like there's, if, you, if you tell them, inform them as to what, you know, we're doing this because of this, uh, it's going to have that much more of an impact and it's going to stick in the brain housing group a little bit better than if you just say, we're going to do this and that's that because I said so. And uh, I think that's important, uh, an important point, I think, that maybe you can expand on that a little bit. Yeah, that's a, a great point. And I think you could take that a step back further is, uh, you know, showing them the value of what it is that they do. Where do they fit? When I just talked to you a little bit about convergence in a very simple way, but where do you fit in that whole process? You know, if if it's your, you're the one working the systems to jam enemy communications, why are you doing that, you know, for this mission? What is, why is that necessary, if it makes sense, um, down to the lowest person? You know, why is it important that that vehicle is, you know, PMCS and and properly dispatched and serviced and all those things? Because what we don't need is for it to break down on the battlefield when we're trying to accomplish this mission that is so vital to the overall success of the operation. Um, and that's the thing that I think we don't do a good job at is helping the soldiers to see value in what they do. You know, they're not just a radio operator in the dock. That's a vital position. They're not just a scout that goes and lays in a hole in the ground on a hill in the rain, um, you know, and is miserable. They have a purpose. And if they understand that purpose to why they're there, why they're doing that training or whatever it is they're doing, then they're more likely to try to do it better and to be more willing to do it and have a positive attitude about it. Yeah, I think ultimately when it comes to you know, this kind of thing is that if they, if everybody understands that they're a piece of the puzzle and without that piece of the puzzle, you know, that, that, that puzzle wouldn't be complete. So if you explain it to them and how important they are, important they are, or, or that specific skill or, or, or task they have, uh, I think they're, like you said, they're, they're going to be more willing to, to go for it. 
Exactly. Uh, and part of that issue, you know, resides on all the leaders too. Because as a leader, you know, it takes time for you to do that, to take that moment out and explain it to them. And let's be honest, some junior leaders probably don't even understand the whole piece either because they haven't been brought up the right way, haven't been told, right. and don't understand themselves. So so at all levels, we can do a much better job of this. But understanding our purpose and where we where we fit into the fight, I think, is a key to success in, in any training that we do. You know, for my foxhole, just talking about the things that you guys are talking about right now, which is how do we justify someone's position and and teach it to them and tell them, like, this is why it matters. Most of the, I would say, a vast majority of junior leaders now, uh, officer and enlisted, don't even have combat experience. Like, they may not even, they might not even know themselves, you know, why that task matters. Um, you say it's as easy as um, telling them to have their truck PMCS so it doesn't break down on the battlefield. That may be common sense uh, to most, but some, it may go over their head and, and, even with more, I guess, impactful scenarios, like not just a truck, but like, why do we fill a radio? Some people may not know. So how do we, how do we figure that out? Well, I think it's through tough, realistic training. Uh, one of, one of my most significant events one time was I was at NTC and I shouldn't laugh about it. It's kind of funny cause it was training, but I had been in NTC before. So I was really helping third ACR, uh, cause I had been up for you know, find a lot of caches and do a lot of things. So, so you know, what do the, the OCs do is they killed me, you know, took me out of the fight, you know, because I was giving them too much of an advantage because uh, I knew where things were and how they did business. Um, but that in itself wasn't significant. What was significant to me is they went through the whole process of evacuating me. And I died, supposedly. And uh, the chaplain read me the rights, my rights in the tent. Um, and that was kind of a sobering moment for me because now it was like, oh, you know, this game we were kind of playing out here, if it was real, would have had catastrophic events for my life because it would have been over. Um, so, so I think that if we do training right and we, we you know, make it tough on them, they understand the purpose of it, but then they can see the results. You know, we couldn't communicate because we didn't get the radio filled because I didn't know how to fill the radio and we died on the battlefield. Or, you know, we were overrun and I wasn't able to call those elements behind me that I was screening for and and warn them. And we lost everyone because I couldn't communicate on the radio. Um, so it's those type of sobering events and training that hopefully lead to more training and a more willingness to prepare oneself to be ready when the time comes. Just running through the motions of sitting in the motor pool, probably filling a radio, that might be the first step, but now let's do it under fire. Now let's do it in the rain. Now let's do it in the cold. And and understand that with each one of those things, those variables that take place, the task becomes significantly harder. But if we haven't trained for it, then how do we expect to do it when we're sitting in the cold or the rain? It's dark. You know, what What can we do to prepare ourselves for that? And that's the type of tough, realistic training we need to get to. And, and I think that we don't do that. Sometimes maybe we take soldiers to the field 
for the wrong reasons or we want to check the block on some training and that's all we're doing is checking the block saying we did it um, but if push comes to shove could we execute it and i think that's what every leader and every soldier should ask themselves when they go through training thank you sergeant major for joining us and a thank you to our audience remember to put your knowledge to the page submit articles and get published with the nco journal don't forget to check out our webpage and follow us on social media We'll catch you next time on the Ensue Journal Podcast.